Welcome to the Strength and Recovery Podcast, sponsored by the Recovery Centers of America Alumni Association. Uh, I'm at our beautiful Indianapolis location today, sitting down with Ben DeCamp, our alumni coordinator here. He's really doing an outstanding job, and I wanted you all to have the opportunity to meet Ben and um, hear his story. So welcome, Ben. We're glad to have you. Hey, thanks for having me, Jay. Um, why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Um, well, let's see. I'm 41 years old, born and raised in Indianapolis. Um, and let's see, I've, I've been in recovery for 15 months. And I, I, I got sober when I was 40 years old. And I first picked up drugs and alcohol when I was 13. So it was 27 wow. years of uh when i when i picked up my 30-day token uh when i was 40 years old that was my first 30-day token since i was you know 27 years i never i never had 30 days from the time i picked up so the first question is like (laughs) why 13 and why 40 i guess it's Mm. two questions but um which you can answer either one yeah um so that's that's the question that we all ask our, ask ourselves when we get sober is why did I use, I think. Uh-huh. Um, for me, like getting into the fourth step, um, I started looking at some behaviors and some, you know, memories. We, we tell, tell the listeners what's the fourth step. Oh, okay. Um, the fourth step is where we go through our, we, we do a moral inventory of our uh, resentments and fears. Um, and so... It was just kind of interesting when I when I did my fourth step with the resentments part. I said I didn't have any real resentments, and because um, I was just so happy to be sober, and my sponsor really challenged me on that. And he he brought up a story about being in third grade and being like embarrassed by a magician that came to his wow. elementary school, and that opened up my way of thinking um, on that subject. And I started thinking about all these like embarrassing memories I have, like just memories that you have sitting at a at a red light, you know, um, mm-hmm. from your childhood. And I started thinking about all these scenarios where I just didn't fit in and where I just felt different or where I felt less than. And that's what started adding up on my, on my, um, resentment sheet or resentment sheet. And, um, around sixth grade, um, I was cut from the sixth grade basketball team and that meant everything to me. That was like what I had all my identity tied up in. I was We are Hoosiers yeah. for sure. Basketball <laughs> right. means a lot. And yeah, and I was freakishly tall. I was taller than everybody and I was really good at basketball for uh for my age. But I got cut from the team because I think I put so much pressure on myself. I couldn't hit a layup. I couldn't mm. um I just had a horrible tryout and that affected me. Um um, that affected my sense of belonging and self-worth to the point I just kind of, um, I started hanging out with a different group of people that I saw. They were like smoking cigarettes and they looked differently and they were behaving differently. Um, and, and they, they were, they were smoking pot and stuff. I came to find out later after I hung out with them and I just dove in kind of head first. Um, cause if I was with them, two things, I didn't have to try anymore. Like I didn't have to, um, you know, I have this, I, I recognize my four step, the fear of failure mm. um, and the fear of, like I said, feel a fear of, um, of not fitting in. And I think that's what started around sixth grade, like literally, literally within months of being cut from this basketball team, I'm hanging out with a new group of people and I'm smoking pot and, 
and I'm smoking pot every single day of the week. I mean, it's just. Can you take us to that first, <laughs> first encounter with a mind-altering substance? Um. Yeah, I don't know. I didn't have the same experiences a lot of people have with, um, like being so blown away by that encounter by the 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 reaction of the drugs um it was more even before it was it was all about just fitting in with this new group of people and like Mm -hmm. it was more about just feeling safe and belonging um and and taking on this new and like and 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 taking on a whole new identity um i did like the way pot made me feel i believe like the physical effects of actually smoking it but i think i like the sense of belonging more with this group with that of new peer group yeah with that new peer group I, I was I wanted to be cool that's all it was I yeah. wanted to um, I, I, I did not like feeling different so anyway back to the resentments most of yeah. my resentments started from like from the time I left I went to a private Christian school to a public school um, that transition was tough feeling different from mm-hmm. um, going from one school to the other all these things added up and then I think I finally felt comfortable with myself in sixth grade with this new found thing. Uh, just the, with the identity of, okay, now I'm smoking pot and hanging out with these guys and I'm, and I'm fitting in. I don't have to try out for a basketball team. I don't have to succeed in school or do anything and risk failing. I can just literally do nothing and be accepted and have this, you know, yeah. safety. Um, so it really started with that. And then I, I did like the way it made me feel. Um, I, but I think that was something that more had like kind of grow. I, I know the first time actually that it really hit me, I don't think I loved it that much, but I was going to keep doing it until I did, you know? Mm, so, that's it's a interesting. Little, so some people say like, Oh, I had one sip of beer and I was off. Like, yeah, I think I had to kind of work. This was a gradual. Yeah. Like I had to want to be into the drug thing. Yeah. <laughs> you know, So it's a little bit different. So that's sixth grade. Mm-hmm. When did it start to affect your life? Immediately. So that would have been, um, I believe, May of my sixth grade year, or maybe the spring, the spring, mm-hmm. uh, second semester of my sixth grade year is when I started. Um, and I spent the following Thanksgiving in juvenile. I'd already been arrested. You know, so six months or so later, I was smoking pot every day and it was obvious to, you know, a lot had changed from the way I dressed, the length of my hair and, um, my, my parents knew what I was up to and they called the police on me and I, they did. Yeah, yeah. So I, I got arrested wow. pretty quickly with a small amount of pot and, um, that, that had to be a tough call for them. Mm, I'm sure it was, but they had to do something. I mean, it was, yeah, uh, we were, that was a brave choice. It was pretty out of control pretty quickly i mean it was i was i went all in on the on the whole drug scene mm-hmm. pretty quickly um and i never got off probation for i don't think i got off probation for about 10 years I was and it constantly. escalated to other drugs mm-hmm. absolutely alcohol after that um and all these things alcohol was even better after you know i couldn't i was on probation and i couldn't pass drug tests so i started finding you know i can take lsd or i can drink beer and and that won't show up in the drug test that's literally all it was i was trying to find ways to still kind of hang out with i remember like the drug test when i realized that, that i could not pass some of these drug tests for for pot 
it wasn't, again, the feeling wasn't, oh no, I can't smoke pot again. It was like my whole, like, how am I going to have a social life when all we do is smoke weed? And that's our whole, like, identity. Um, With alcohol, it was just another means to an end, but I felt so comfortable. The first time I drank, there that was kind of like a spiritual experience for lack of better terms, I guess, back then. I felt the belonging and I, 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 the confidence, like I could talk to women at parties. I could, mm-hmm. I didn't, uh, all my insecurity went away. Uh, the, the fear of, of not fitting in fear of rejection was completely gone. Did it lessen anxiety? Yeah. I had not, I mean, I, yeah, I had no, um, you know, relaxed, uh, inhibitions or whatever. I was not, um, cause I've always been kind of self-conscious and, and, and like an insecure guy, I guess, and not when I drank, I could, that was the big thing, honestly, fitting in and being able to talk to women, like, that just seemed like I found that the, confidence level. yeah, like, I found the secret to life with alcohol, and, mm-hmm. um, so that just kind of set off a new direction where I was not necessarily drinking every day, but I thought about it every day, and I drank probably three to, eh, three or four nights a week, depending, sometimes more, um, and that, Again, that came with more consequences. I was constantly getting arrested for public intoxication or minor intoxication, different things, and violating probation. And um, that just that continued from high school through through college, but not to the point where I ever thought there was a problem. Mm-hmm. Like I had enough. I had friends still. I had success in certain areas, and it wasn't clear. Um, to a lot of people that I had a problem other than my religion teacher did actually take me to an AA meeting when I was 17 and like strongly recommended that I start going to AA meetings with them. And that's probably not normal for like, there were signs that that there were. What was your first AA meeting like? It was a bunch of old men in a smoky basement at church, (laughs) like your typical stereotypical AA meeting. And did, uh, did you connect with it at no. that point? I was 17, and like the average age in that room was probably 65. So you're like, this is not for me. <laughs> I didn't know what I was doing there. I didn't care. I was, I really, I had a lot of respect for my AA, uh, my religion teacher who was in yeah. AA. Um, and like fast to back up a little bit, I'd been kicked out of my high school, and then the only place it would take me was the private Catholic school. Um, so I was back in. Um, in a private school there where it's a little bit uh, more hands-on it's you know um, you kind of stick out if you're causing trouble there um, and so so are you I, hiding it at this point or were you not at all to... not at all and I probably didn't look much different than anybody else because the other kids were doing it too I was okay. just getting arrested more I was um, I was just louder and probably more obnoxious I don't know I didn't get away with my, I was also like four inches taller than everybody. I always got caught for everything. You stick out in the yeah, crowd yeah. yeah. Um, but there were, there must've been some signs. He didn't ask anyone. Else. I don't think he was taking other kids to AA meetings. Mm-hmm. Um, he got involved with my family and my uncle, um, was an alcoholic and he helped my aunt kind of navigate that. And he was, he really, you know, kind of took an interest in, in, in my family. And that was cool. But, um, he couldn't have convinced me that I had a problem mm-hmm. and nobody else probably could have for a long time. Um, cause like I said, I was still, I got through high school somehow. Um, I even got into community college and got through IUPUI and graduated. Um, 
So I had enough things going right that I never would have stopped and said, I'm an alcoholic or I'm a drug addict. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, the other big thing was I was taking tons of Adderall, which was prescribed to me. So you couldn't have told me that was a problem either because I was getting it from a doctor. Okay. Um, So that was just the way of my 20s constantly... um, Hung over from, you know, the nights of drinking and trying to figure out how to get through work the next day. Um, But I was always just looking for things outside of myself was the other big part of it to make me happy. I was always looking at When I drank, I'd be up till five in the morning. um, Just never wanting it to end. Always looking for more. So it usually ended in five in the morning doing cocaine in the bathroom with a bunch of people or something. Um, And chasing women whatever it was but there's never like i never would just go to bed at midnight like that was good no night. Like, yeah it was just i had to i was always the last one standing looking for uh more and more and more and never really finding contentment like when i look back on it is i was never just happy to just uh, i don't know just i could never just be content on my own i always needed something more vacations mm-hmm. or um more parties and uh, material things, cars and clothes, just whatever. Mm-hmm. There, nothing was ever, I, I could never be satisfied. Um, and I, I kept plugging along like that. The, it was mainly, you know, alcohol, Adderall, pot, um, various drugs, cocaine at times. Um, until I, I found painkillers, which were just, that was just a means to help cure a hangover. Uh, but I, I noticed I really liked the way opiates made me feel. Um, so I started dabbling with those a little bit. And and that just kind of... I started noticing that I was content with just that. And mm-hmm. I, I stopped. I wasn't drinking as much. Like, I really, I could take a few Oxycontin and I would be pretty, pretty happy. Um, and within a few weeks of, of trying those painkillers, somebody brought heroin around. And I... I never thought in a million years I'd try that, um, but I did one day. I don't, I don't, I, I don't even know what made me um, make that leap because it is kind of a leap to go from like painkillers to just jumping into heroin. But I noticed I liked the effects of it. And I thought if I liked the, you know what it was? It was actually the price of it, I think. <laughs> Somebody said, this is basically the same thing. It's much cheaper because the Oxycontin were expensive. Um, but when I, I snorted heroin one night and that was that kind of like the alcohol i really thought that was like the secret to life like i'd figured something out i was content i didn't need to keep doing a bunch of it um i think i bought twenty dollars worth and actually lasted a few lasted a few days and i just thought well if i can just manage this like i now i know how to be happy i don't have to you know go after i don't need cocaine i don't need alcohol i don't need pot i don't need whatever it is all these external things i remember for the first time just thinking i was really content um and that that's all i needed um and just 20 bucks yeah for every few days yeah but it didn't stay like that and i just needed to manage it um it also i was at the time i just finished college and i thought i was Thought it was really funny at the time. I started up a comedy magazine, and I was um, my plan was to move to LA and to become a comedy writer at the time. And I had actually uh, started working for the Onion franchise in Indianapolis when they were here briefly. 
And so this drug was perfect. I could sit at my computer and just type mm -hmm. and just be content to just sit there for like 10 hours and just, and then so I was like, oh, it's going to help my career. It's going to help <laughs> my anxiety, my sleep. It's a great delusion, right? Like, it's just like, I thought it was uh, like steroids for the brain. Like, it's just going to make me smarter and better and uh, able to uh, handle all these things that I uh, used to struggle to handle. Um, How'd that work out? It did not work out very <laughs> well. So real quickly, I went from doing it, like, I'd take like four days off so I wouldn't get physically addicted, and then pretty soon I'm doing it every single day. Um, and I refused to be a drug addict. I always said I, I would tell the people that I would do it with, which is very few people, um, my dealers and whatever, that I had too much respect for myself to become a drug addict, that mm -hmm. I was going to be disciplined with my heroin use. <laughs> and... Um, so that's how it began. And I really quickly, within a few months, I realized that I was physically dependent on it and that scared me. So I decided to move to Los Angeles. I was already actually planning to move to Los Angeles for this uh, comedy writing thing. Um, but then I decided that Los Angeles would be how I get sober. Um, and I don't know, maybe we're talking maybe eight months of use, but I'm physically addicted to it. Um, and, and I didn't know how to quit. So I just took off for Los Angeles at, at one point and thought, I don't know any dealers there. I don't have any connections there. That's how I'm going to stay sober. Just put some distance between me and my drug of choice. Um, obviously, I get like halfway, not even halfway there, and I start getting really sick. Um, end up somehow getting to Los Angeles, and within, I don't know, I think I got there around midnight, and at two in the morning I was I didn't know anyone in town like I said uh, but instead of like sitting there and like struggling through it and, and, and not picking up again I like a nerd I got on my computer and typed in like how to find heroin in Los Angeles and somehow that worked and I found mm -hmm. a 14 year old kid who lived by the airport who was selling heroin out of his mom's house and oh so I, so I had a dealer within like two hours so that was my first attempt at saying sober that did not work um, I know a lot of other people have tried to do the distance thing um my disease progressed in los angeles and um the problem there was it was you know in indianapolis i was able to snort heroin and out there it was black tar mm -hmm. that you had to inject so um which i i actually had done in indianapolis a few times but was uncomfortable with it and out there that was the only option i mean that was the the best option and um so it escalated take me to that choice the first time you inject I couldn't even look. I had to have somebody else do it for me, um, and I would, I would, I would drive for like twenty minutes and have somebody else do it for me for a few weeks, and I. Because um, that was a line, I'm sure. Oh, it's a big would... one. That was something I said I would never do. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's that's what I thought the, the junkies did, and I wasn't a junkie. I wasn't even a drug addict. I was just somebody that did heroin. Um, in a disciplined fashion that <laughs> I could handle it. Um, that was a major line, and um, that's when, th I mean, things got pretty bad in Los Angeles. I'm uh, a white kid from the middle-class suburbs of Indianapolis, and I'm in the worst neighborhoods of Los Angeles, hanging out with some of the worst people. I mean, I'm on Skid Row and just places where I have no business being, um, trying to navigate, you know, um, navigate the streets and figure out how to how to get drugs and I because I, I didn't have reliable dealers or people that really knew me I was just buying off the streets mm -hmm. and put myself in really bad situations um 
and it's an expensive city. The whole thing just came crashing. I could not afford to keep my drug habit uh, with the two jobs I was working and uh, living in Los Angeles. So I came back to Indianapolis, um, and that was the, uh, probably around 2013. And I checked myself into Fairbanks, um, checked myself into rehab, and I I stayed for I, I mean seven days. My plan was to do the detox only thing and. Uh, I told everyone I was in Florida on vacation, and um, and my parent. There's not one person I don't think that knew where I was. I didn't want anyone to know. Uh, now, did your parents know you had? Nobody knew. Nobody knew you even had a, an addiction issue at this point. Yeah, we're yeah. Nobody knew. We're probably eighteen months in at this point or more, and nobody knew. People probably started to figure out there's something not quite right, but. I was really big on appearances. I, I made sure I had clean clothes and I took care of myself the best I could so nobody would look at me and say, that guy's a junkie or that guy's a drug addict. Um, so yeah, and I, was, I didn't hang out with anybody that used drugs mm-hmm. uh, or used those kinds of drugs. My friends were uh, guys that maybe if they, hard drinkers at, at, at best uh, or just normal casual drinkers, people that would drink on the weekends, maybe smoke pot and stuff like that, but there weren't hard drugs in my So circle. this is your first rehab experience, right? Mm-hmm. And so you go in and you're, you know, the options would be stay 30 days sure. and you're like, no, I'm not, that's not for me. <laughs> I'm going to just get this that's out of my what, system. Yeah. One hundred percent. That's so like, seven days for me, and I'll be better. Is that seven days? And not let any, don't let anybody find out about it. Sweep it under the rug and go back. I didn't even make it seven days. I still left against medical advice after five. The withdrawal symptoms were horrible, um, and I just I couldn't stick it out or didn't want to. And I left, and I got high within twenty minutes of leaving there. I mean, I wow. I left and went straight to the. Um, the drug dealer's house, um, and then I just decided I was going to do this on my own. Facilities. So my brother, my brother dabbled with some painkillers and some opiates, and he was kind of just a casual drinker um, uh, before that. But he um, he did he got actually he got arrested, and he was forced to stop using because of his arrest. But he did do. Um, he went through treatment and he did outpatient, he did all these things. And he kept telling me that I had to do the same thing because we can't, that people cannot do this on their own, which just sounded to me like some propaganda that he learned in mm-hmm. treatment. And, and so I really took it personally that I was, I'm the younger brother, but I, I we were always competitive and I wanted mm-hmm. to prove to him and to that anybody else that it. I can do it on my own and I don't have to listen to you or anybody else that I'm better than you. Um, I will do this on my own. And it really angered me when he said that a, a handful of times. So I would load up on Xanax, which uh, would help with the withdrawal symptoms. And I would take those to get to sleep and to get rid of the cold chills and the sweats and all these horrible symptoms that come with opiate withdrawal. Um, and I would detox myself from home all the time. And so I'd make it to day five, six, or seven, um, even with those uh, those drugs, it would still be pretty rough, you know. Mm-hmm. And I would 
I'd make it to day maybe five, six, or seven, and then I'd say, well, you really went through some stuff there. You should, you know, you owe it to yourself to go get high today, and then tomorrow you'll go back to being mm-hmm. sober. <laughs> and um, that obviously didn't work out ever. It was a constant state of just detoxing myself. Uh, eventually, I didn't realize what I was playing with. You had to be exhausted. I was exhausted, but... Um, persistent I don't know I wasn't good (laughs) I was exhausted but I kept thinking I'd find my way out of it um and I tried this way so many times that the Xanax I actually got addicted to Xanax I didn't realize that that was even a thing that you couldn't be addicted to Xanax um so my my parents were out of town (laughs) this was like a few years after the Fairbanks experiment that failed at my I was detoxing at my parents house while they were in Michigan, and my brother happened to stop by, and he found me on the floor um, and called called the EMTs. What had happened was my, my body started shutting down. I thought I was in just opiate withdrawal, which I'd been through a bunch. Um, and when you say opiate withdrawal, I don't, I don't know that people understand how, mm. how desperate and how horrible experience that could be. It's... It's up there. I mean, it, nothing feel. Food doesn't taste good. No, you can have your favorite food in front of you, and you won't want to eat it. You have no mm-hmm. appetite. You, there's no possible way to get joy or pleasure and, out of anything. And pain. And there's leg aches and stomach aches and nausea. It's just the worst. Um, it's you want you you feel like you're gonna die, but you're not going to die. Mm-hmm. You might want to die, but you're not going. Yeah. Like typically, it doesn't kill you. Um, and I've so been, he finds you in this so state. He finds me on the floor, um, and calls the, and, and I was just completely, he started yelling at me, I guess, saying I need to go to rehab and I just wasn't responding at all. Um, I just had this big smile on my face and, uh, um, the EMTs came and took me. I ended up in the ICU. They couldn't speak to me. They thought, they told my parents came back from their vacation and they were told that I overdosed on hallucinogenics. And my brother's going, no, that's not what he does. Like it's, um, he was still trying to be a good brother and not tell them that I'd messed around with opiates. So he wasn't giving them any information, which is kind of crazy. But so nobody really knew. He mm-hmm. wanted me to be able to, uh, tell them, I guess what happened. Um, so I, I was under, I was in a coma basically for about six days. I don't know what you actually, I've never found out what they call this thing, if it's a coma or what. Um, but after about six days, I just remember I came to and my parents were in the, um, ICU room and I had no clue where I was. I told them that I worked for, I, I believe that I worked for John F. Kennedy as his blimp manager because he travels by blimp <laughs> and, um, that was his preferred mode of transportation, <laughs> and he needs me to coordinate the team. I'm dead that serious. Sounds like an exciting job. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and I had a whole rap about how Marilyn Monroe's in one blimp and Jackie O's in another blimp, <laughs> and I need to make sure they don't. Oh, oh and so I had, um, it, I could go down that rabbit hole forever of all the things. It took me uh, about four or five days for them to kind of deprogram me and say, you don't play for the Pacers, you don't work for John F. Kennedy, like all these things. You, you, you did not just compete in the British Open. All these things. I think whatever was on the TV in the hospital room, I absorbed and, and thought... False memories. Yeah. Um, it was a really scary thing. And my that was the first time 
when I came out of that, that I told my parents what, what had really been, been going on all these years, um, that I was addicted to heroin and I was trying to, trying to stop. And what was the reaction? Oh, that was, that was tough. So like my, you know, my parents obviously cried and they were really supportive. Um, they were terrified. Um, and I felt really, I mean, I just felt horrible that I put them through that. I mean, their vacation was ruined. They drove home because they thought I was dying in the hospital room, you know? Um, so I was, I, I thought that that had scared me to death to the point that I was going to stop. Um, we checked it. We left community North hospital and we enrolled in outpatient. Mm -hmm. And so I did that for about two weeks. I, I stayed sober for maybe 10 days off that scare. Mm -hmm. Um, that's, that's, that's about all I could muster. And I, though, I remember those being really long 10 days too. Like it was really hard to even, to even get that long. Um, but the threat of death just wasn't enough. I, I did not know how to get sober. I went back out. Um, like I said, after 10 days, I stopped going to, uh, IOP, um, tried probably a few months down the road. I went to, um, I went to another treatment center, tried a rapid detox thing where they put me on Vivitrol. Um, and that actually kept me off heroin for uh, 60 days. But the whole time I was on the Vivitrol shot, I was smoking pot and taking Xanax. Mm. And um, so nothing had changed there either. And, as soon as, and one day I just got the idea that I needed to come off this Vivitrol shot. Mm. <laughs> um, I don't know what my thinking was there, but I think deep down I knew I was going to use because, I mean, yeah. I used pretty quickly after that. Um, tried treatment a few more times, checked myself into Harbor Lights, which is a state-run uh, rehab center where you can get like pay like $110 for a week of detox so I didn't have to make a big thing about it with insurance or tell anybody. Again, like no one would know when Still I would do these things. Very low-key, not wanting anyone to know. Uh, where I was, um, and around this time, I started overdosing a lot too. Uh, mm -hmm. this, around these times, I was, I I would, um, I, I think I wrecked. In the past ten years, I think I've wrecked about eight or nine cars mm -hmm. totaled, eight or nine cars. Um, and several of those times, I you know I was narcaned on the side of the road by. Um, EMTs and I got a DUI for OWI for one of them. I just couldn't, I, I could not stay sober and I could not stay alive. I, the, the, I mean, the only reason I'm still alive is just dumb luck. People mm -hmm. found me, um, usually on the side of the road, sometimes at traffic lights. Um, and that didn't bother me at all. That was just cost of doing business. I would leave yeah. the, <laughs> I would leave the hospital and go, I'd usually be upset that they narcanned me and took my high away and I'd go right back to the drug dealers and I'd get high again um, that day uh, or that evening. And um, so that was a constant thing where I was either, I was for the past five years before I got sober, it was basically either on a detox bed at my house or in, um, in some facility or waking up in hospital beds um, after an overdose. And that just seemed like a normal part of life and I just kept thinking one day I'll you know I and and you talk about the threat of death was <clears throat> did you think you weren't gonna die or did you just not care if you did? I didn't care I 
I did not care if I died anymore. Life had gotten so bad. I mean, I was depressed beyond belief. Mm. I mean, that's not any kind of a quality of life. No. My friends weren't coming around because they didn't know, but they knew something was very wrong. Um, I look back at the pictures and it's just, there's no, it's just like a dark, you know, shadow yeah. over me. Yeah. And the eyes and everything. And, um, I was very alone. I was isolated. I mean, that's the only way I could get away with using and not have people on my back is just to get high alone. So you were 13 mm-hmm. to 40. Mm-hmm. And what happened at 40? Um, so like when I was 39, I, I had a few overdoses in a row, um, in a short amount of time. And I was at this point, I was also out of money. So I'm living with my parents in their basement and just a constant burden on them. And I went to, I, I was trying, or I thought I was, tr- I thought I was trying. Um, I went to an AA meeting and I ran to a friend who invited me, uh, to his house where he has, it's a sober living house where I actually live now, um, where they have a big men's meeting on Sundays. And, and I walked in there not knowing what to expect. Uh, it was really intimidating and they just tore me up and, um, man, it was a rough day. They tore you up. Tell me what the... So I walked in, there's just 30 guys and they're 30 guys in a big garage in the middle of winter and they're... Um, tell in Indiana, me, in Indiana <laughs> telling me what I needed to do uh, to get sober and I'm telling them that I don't really have a drug or alcohol problem and that still yeah, you can't yeah, say I, well I, I believe that I didn't I believe that drugs I'll get I'll get into that more but um, yeah I didn't believe I needed to listen to any of the things they were saying they kept just to shut them up I kind of said, okay, I, I understand. I agree with you, and I will leave. They said, don't leave here today without a sponsor. So the, the main guy, there was one guy in the room, and he said, um, he, he was talking to me about my use, and I said, I can't do this recovery thing. I can't, I can't just, um, I can't let people know about it. I can't let people know that I'm a heroin addict because I have to work in this city. I have friends in this city, and and he's a he said, yeah, I me too, and I tell everybody. And he said, I'm a successful realtor, and I tell everybody my business. Like nobody cares, you know. They just uh, it's never hurt my business once, and I just I I couldn't imagine that. I remember being really shocked. He said that, and just kind of staring. I'm like, wow, like you tell people you're a heroin addict? That's crazy to me. Uh, but when they said don't leave here without a sponsor that day, uh, there must have been something I liked. I must have liked that confidence because mm-hmm. I asked him to sponsor me, and um, and that was the best decision I ever made. He he was he started working with me right away. We got through steps four. I was still taking like I said, I never had thirty days. I was still taking Xanax and smoking weed. I just it, the drug that almost killed me, by mm-hmm. the way, and put me in the ICU. I was still taking that, but I wasn't doing heroin and I to me that was trying I'm doing the steps I have a sponsor I'm actually I took a 60-day token with him at a meeting because I really thought that was sober because all that I I was doing Adderall I was smoking weed and I was taking Xanax but I took a 60-day clean token because that's to me if I wasn't doing heroin I was sober you know (laughs) that was it um it was your good enough point at that time I mean it's crazy to think of now but that, to me, that was really doing something. And yeah, and in some ways, it's not nothing. I had stopped doing heroin, but I was still doing um, Anyway, that obviously didn't last. Um, I, I got through 
few months, I got to my birthday, or right before my birthday in January, I overdosed, um, checked myself into the stress center, ended up spending my 40th birthday at, at um, the behavioral crisis center, basically like a mental ward, like one of the worst places I've ever been. It was terrible. It was also my mother's birthday. It was like probably one of the lowest moments of my life. And I was suicidal. I called my sponsor and I was like, I, I was like I'm not... I don't know how I couldn't kill myself, but I just want to die. I want to, you know, I just want to end it. Um, and I keep waking up from these overdoses. I didn't care, you know, like I, I wouldn't have minded just overdosing and dying, but it just, I kept surviving. It was actually frustrating. Um, so anyway, I got out of that place. I got, I spent one week there like usual and I went home and immediately got high again, overdosed again. So that was like two overdoses in like a nine day period. Luckily this time I had a sponsor and, um, oh man, it's, uh, it's hard to, it's hard to talk about. Um, thanks. Ben. I just, I love my sponsor so much. Like he, so he started calling my house every day and I'm, this is my parents' house. And I'm in the basement of their house, just, and I'd completely given up. I was just like, I'm never, I'm never going to get sober. This isn't meant for me. Like, you know, I'm 40 mm -hmm. years old. Like things just, you know, people don't change. Things don't change. It's just never going to happen. I've tried. I got a sponsor. I did the force. I did all the way up to step four and I still overdosed. Like it's all BS. None of it works. Mm -hmm. Um, and that was my mindset. And I'm, I blocked my sponsor's phone number and. And, the, and he comes to the house. Oh, he called my parents every day. And he, <laughs> he, he went to a treatment center in Indianapolis and he, he wanted me to go to the same one. He said, you need, you know, you need to go to this place that I went and, um, you need to stay 30 days and you know, that's, that's it. Like you've overdosed twice in a 10 day period. Like there's nothing else to talk about. And I was like, yeah, I can't afford it. Um, it's not going to happen. My parents aren't going to go for it. Like I have a job, which was barely true. My dad had me on payroll, but I, <laughs> I wasn't showing up for work. Um, but he did. So he, he started calling my parents. Actually, that's the only way I could talk to him. He was calling my parents' phone and, and cause I had him blocked and I was telling my parents not to answer his calls because he was trying to ruin my life. Um, <laughs> this is exactly what I was telling him. And he, he told my dad like, Hey, I know it's a lot of money, but he needs to go. We got to figure it out, like pay for it later, finance it, whatever. Um, and my dad said, well, he doesn't have the $20,000 or whatever it is. And my dad's like, and my sponsor just kept saying, well, then buy him a casket because he's going to die. And so he called every day and, and kept asking my mom and dad if they bought me a casket yet. And they wow, were getting, that's yeah. Tough. And they were getting upset. Like, sure. like I emotionally. Mean, they're between rock and a hard place, <laughs> for and sure. And they didn't realize, like, no, we didn't know him all that well. And, like, now looking back on it, that's just, like, what Kyle does. Mm -hmm. um, he's a bull in a china shop. Like, he's not going to take no for an answer. So he's calling them every day with that, and he's really getting on my nerves. And I'm answering their phone and yelling, getting shouting matches with this guy, who mm -hmm. I barely know at the time, really. Um, tell him to quit harassing my family and, sure. you know, um, all these things. And it, it's just amazing that he put forth that effort. I sponsor guys right now. I'd like to think I'd do the same. If somebody pushes me away, I usually say, okay, call me when you're ready. Um, would be my, my mindset. But this guy's, you know, 
really intense with it and I, I couldn't shake him. So I really, what, a couple things happened. One, my, one of my dad's good friends, my, my parents didn't have a ton of money and I, I had none, but my dad helped one of his best friends get sober 20 years ago, uh, 21 years ago. And that guy works for a very prominent businessman in town who donates a lot of money to this rehab center. They called in a favor and got a scholarship for me to go to this rehab center. And, um, and my dad's friend and now I, and, and who got me in there has the same sober birth date as me, which is March 25th of, well, March 25th is our sober birthday. Um, so March 25th of 2020, I went in and I got a free trip to this place. And I still had no intentions of really getting sober. I, I didn't care. I just went to stop having somebody call yeah. my house and saying, buy your son a casket. That was really my own. Yeah. I was sick of being harassed and hassled. I didn't go there thinking I could get sober by any means. Um, but it was like I got there and it was just kind of a relief to be in a safe place, I think. Mm-hmm. I slept for about two days. I know I hadn't slept much at all that whole winter um, so I was either detoxing or just stressing out and overdosing and um, trying to figure out how to how to get through this whole thing so anyway I slept for a few days and um, I just I, I noticed that I was just so worn out and so sick of myself that I wasn't thinking a bunch and I wasn't fighting as much mm-hmm. um, and so things just started happening real slowly um, early on like those were like big victories to me that I just wasn't running out the door yeah you know that was the big thing I was I was staying put um and then like we talk about spiritual experiences in this program it's a spiritual program um and to me I define that as moments like for me it, it doesn't have to be this big giant thing it can just be a moment where you're super present and you just know that you're in the right place in the universe which is something like I talked about I never felt that way I never mm-hmm. felt like I'm I never felt contentment, real contentment. I always needed to be somewhere else. If mm-hmm. I was talking to you at a party, I was looking through you to see what else is, you know what I mean? Just sure. never present. Um, and then there, about a week into rehab, we were driving. Uh, I was driving with one of the techs, who's now one of my best friends, um, to CVS to get a prescription filled. And I was having the same argument that I've had a million times about not being a drug addict. I'm not a drug addict. I don't need the 12 steps. I don't need sober living. I don't need all these things that people keep telling me to do because I'm not one of you guys. I'm not a drug addict. I have a problem with heroin, but I'm not a drug addict. I know it just sounds so crazy, but this is exactly what I'm trying to sell this guy. Um, And I said, I just need, like, my whole rationale was, like, I've done coke and I didn't get addicted to coke. I didn't end up in rehab for alcohol. I just got addicted to heroin because heroin's super addictive. I'm like, it's mm-hmm. awesome. It's an awesome drug, and anyone that does it's going to get addicted to it. I'm not a drug addict. And I said, if any normal person did heroin, they'd get addicted to it too. And he just looked at me and said, yeah, but normal people don't do heroin. And um, it's not like the most gen- like. It's not some big genius statement. It's just what I need. That is the moment yeah like it hit me like a lightning bolt like that sounds like a fact like normal people don't do heroin sounds like a true statement Mm -hmm. (laughs) and um and like a thousand people have tried to tell me that in a thousand different ways in my 10 years of or more of being in and out of rehabs um 
and, and all these failed attempts to get sober. A lot of people told me that, but anyway, it stuck that day and I could just, I just stopped fighting. I was like, man, that's, that's when the acceptance piece started to come into my mind. Like, okay, maybe I am a drug addict and maybe, um, maybe these people have something to, to tell me. Like maybe, maybe How there's something to all these things. feel at that moment to accept that label? It felt really good because I was able to, like... You've resisted it for yeah. all this time, and then all of a sudden... It, it was just, like, I don't know. I was able to see it. It made sense to me. I I started looking at my behaviors. Like, I started mm-hmm. seeing addictive patterns in my... Like, I remembered... I, I just... I would I went home that, that night back to the rehab. I, I was just silent, for one, just really thinking, like, oh, my gosh. Like, maybe I am. Maybe I'm an addict. Maybe I belong here. Maybe all this stuff is is meant for me. And I started like... All looking, these light bulbs are coming on. Yeah. And I started thinking about like my eating patterns and how like I remembered uh, when I discovered like the steak queso burrito at Cadoba. I ate that every day <laughs> for like seven months until I almost couldn't look at one anymore. Like I'd always like find something I liked and like go way overboard with it. Yeah. Uh, my relationships with women. I remember I, I told a story that night in front of a... Um, a counselor there that I hadn't even remembered this story in a million years, but I was 15 years old facing a year in juvenile or boys school. If I failed another drug test and I found a joint in my closet and I couldn't not smoke it cause I had it. And like, I, re- I remember telling that story and the guy said, and you don't think you're a drug addict before? Cause that was my rap was that I wasn't a drug addict until I turned 30 and started messing with heroin. And he's like, yeah, maybe this started way sooner. Like, in childhood and so like we we started getting into those conversations and how it's not normal for a 14 year old to go to juvenile and then keep going back over a drug um like all the things that i gave up just to smoke pot or to drink and then obviously with heroin so all those things kind of came together and i was able to accept them and i got really excited i was like okay like because there's a solution like there's there's a solution yeah um so i was like all right like i'm a drug addict like what do we do like the steps, all right, great, let's do the steps. Get a sponsor, I already got a sponsor, so I'm ahead of the game. Like sober living, let's do sober living, let's do IOP. And so all these things that I said no to for all these years were just like no brain. I'll do I'll do all of it. I'll do it twice. I'll do volunteer work, I'll do whatever. Um, and that's that was it. That was the big, you know, um, I talk about surrender and acceptance. The surrender part came where I was just too exhausted to keep fighting. Mm-hmm. Too exhausted to fight going back to rehab. Too exhausted to fight off the, you know, I can't even get through these arguments about am I an addict or not or whatever. And I finally just stopped, stopped trying to trying to um, fight against the current, I guess, and with that, and just accept the reality of the situation. Became pretty clear. Like you're doing heroin, you're overdosing. You can't you can't stay alive. You can't hold down a job. You can't do it. like it's. It was clear to everyone else in the world but me, you know. So I, I think a lot of us are the last ones to know sometimes. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Um, but that was it. All those that the, all those pieces came together. The humility. Like, I didn't care, you know. I didn't care who knew anymore. Didn't care who knew. Um, didn't care who knew at all. Um, <laughs> like, when I came out of rehab, I was... I, I, oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, it's okay. I just... How do you talk, or how? Uh, what do you say, looking back at that 13-year-old? 
Um, so that's the acceptance part that I love the most. Um, that nothing, nothing happens in God's world by mistake, right? Mm-hmm. Um, every arrest, every failed attempt to get sober was insanely worth. I wouldn't change a thing. I wouldn't tell that thirteen-year-old anything because um, I'm, I'm the happiest. Having I've, grace for the, for him, yeah, and what he was experiencing. Yeah, it it happened the way it was supposed to happen. Um, I, I just, when you look around, you see, I see people that live and die their whole lives and never get what I have right now, which is like contentment, true happiness, you know, a sense of belonging, like, and the, um, and can I say purpose, like what yeah. you're doing here? And I walk through this facility and the people there's been, and just the comments from our alumni that you're able to help. Hmm. And that you're able to relate to on a different level, yeah, right? Because you've been where they are mm-hmm. for a long time. It's beautiful. It's amazing. So it's, and I try to I try to remind people that here when they're going through like really hard times, like there were times that I, I mean, I've had some horrible times. That's why I relate to them. So I mean, I've been in. I'm st- I'm still blown away that I get to walk into this building and leave. That I work here. That I have the keys to the building. You know, I can come and go. <laughs> Because I'm used to being a patient. I'm used to being uh, somebody that can't figure this thing out. And, and what do we say to the people, you know, the doubters out there that that are looking looking at people with substance abuse and, oh, yeah, those rehabs, they go three or four times and they still have issues. To get all these pieces, it's, this thing is fragile. So, like, when you know, my friend calls it your get it card. When you finally get it, like, I know what to do and I'm going to do it. I've got, like... Anybody can do it. You just like it's just it's the hardest thing ever to get the humility to ask for help mm. and the humility to realize you don't know all the answers and the humility to ask for help again. Mm-hmm. When I mean we know we know more about addiction today mm-hmm. than ever. We know it's a brain disease. We know it's relapsing. Mm-hmm. And to ask for help again until you have that moment. Yeah, it's 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 difficult. I, I and I feel for people that are in here struggling and they leave and they go, oh, it doesn't work. Cause I've been there. If you if you, I, I wish I could sell a pill that would just give them all those things, the acceptance and well, the, that's that's yeah. what we started with. I <laughs> <Right>. wish <laughs> I, I wish there was a I pill wish, to take out all just, the bad yeah, stuff. Yeah, but there's not. Like you have to go through all you know you have to hit your threshold of pain i guess um there has to be a point where you're just broken down to the point to me i had enough success and i mean and it doesn't take much i was never a millionaire i was never some wildly success but i had success with my magazine and with this like tiny bit of success in my little very little comedy career and um with my uh, little bit of success in the restaurant business I thought I could figure my way out. Mm-hmm. I, I thought I knew some things. Yeah. I'm like, I don't need to do it your way. I will figure this out. I see that a lot. People come here, well, I'm an attorney and or I'm a doctor. I've, you know, like, great. That doesn't apply here. Like you have to get humble. You have to give up some self-will and and find a way to become teachable. Because it's a real simple thing. I mean, all this stuff is really simple to do. It's just the hard part is, I guess breaking yourself down to the point you're willing to, uh, the gift of desperation, they call it. Yeah. You know, you have to be really desperate to ask another man that you don't know to help you save your life and help you take you through the steps. And then listen to him. Call a guy every day that you don't know 
And he tells you to And do, that harassed your family, yeah. right? <laughs> and he'll tell me things to this day that I don't want to do. That's the, And that's how you stay sober is to keep that humility. Is he still your sponsor? Oh, God. He's my best friend, my sponsor. Oh, I love that. I talk to him every day. Well, he's going to have to come in and we're going to have to interview him. Absolutely. With he, you. Oh, he'd do it. He would love to do it. Um, I want to hear his side of the story. <laughs> but he knows I love him more than... I mean, there aren't... I love my family. I love my parents so much. But there's no one in this world has done more for me than my sponsor. I mean, it's it's not even close. Yeah. I you're in the room. Like you, can't, I can't even talk about him without tearing up. I try not to. I try not to let him know because he's uh, <laughs> when I, when he's not around. It's hard to talk about him without crying because he's yeah. just so amazing. He's done so much for me. Um, I think I hopefully everyone has that experience with their sponsor. I don't know. I mean, they. Um, yeah. I, I just can't. I can't even put it into words. Um, there are people. Yeah. And they care, and I want to say, I thank you for being one of those people. Oh. And turning around and giving it right back. I hope so. And um, thank you for your story today. <laughs> of course. I uh, appreciate you sharing and being with us and. And for all the work that you do for our alumni. Oh, thank you. I love it. This is the best job on the planet. I mean it. It's okay, so I always end with favorite recovery quote. Uh, oh, uh. I've got it. I have it right there. Um, my sponsor said that in a meeting. I wrote it down. The level of my serenity is directly proportional to the level of my acceptance. So, because that's the fight now. I don't. Thank God the promises have come true. The AA promises. Um, so many of them have come true. The biggest one, like the obsession has been lifted. I don't obsess about drugs and alcohol mm -hmm. on a daily basis. Um, that's not the daily fight for me. The daily fight is to hang on to my serenity and my peace of mind. and um, Acceptance. Acceptance is the answer. That's how I do. That's, that's the fight every day. Uh, starting with a gratitude list every morning. Um, if I can... If I can make a gratitude list and be almost like moved to tears from that, I know it's a good day. When I can't, I'm really worried. Like my acceptance is off, my serenity is in the tank, and I'm struggling. Um, so anyway, yeah, the level of my serenity is directly proportional to the level of my acceptance, and that's a tool you have to work on. Or I, that's a tool I have to work on a daily basis is my, my acceptance. And luckily, I have role models. I have guys like my sponsor, my grand sponsor, who are like Yoda. I'm like, I just, <laughs> I want to be like that. So that's what you aspire to now. Like they, the, the guys that have 10, 15 years sober and like, um, so there's always a goal. There's yeah. always, like in recovery, it never gets boring. There's always something to aspire to and to, you know, um, to chase. Because we're addicts, we have to chase something. Like, and so for me, I'm chasing serenity on a daily basis. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us today for the Strength and Recovery podcast. Real people, real experiences, real hope. This podcast is presented by the Alumni Association of Recovery Centers of America. If you're interested in learning more, visit rcaalumni.com. Here, you can fill out our web form to make sure you're receiving our daily recovery emails and are notified of special events. The Alumni Association of RCA 
exists to connect individuals to an active recovery community. It is our goal to work with alumni to help them succeed, belong, and ultimately serve others. We help our alumni succeed by hosting more than 120 recovery support meetings per month with both virtual and in-person offerings of big book studies, speaker meetings, beginners meetings, Monday through Friday daily inspiration meetings, meetings for men and women, and faith-based meetings. Second, we create a welcoming community that provides a sense of belonging with a full calendar of events each month. Speaker series, barbecues, holiday celebrations, bowling, sporting events, theater shows, and much more. Thirdly, we provide an opportunity for our alumni to serve both the recovery community and in our local neighborhoods. We offer speaker commitments, chair commitments, mentoring opportunities in our facilities, volunteering at food banks, recovery, and overdose awareness events. We look forward to having you with us again soon. Recovery Centers of America provides inpatient and outpatient treatment and has locations in Massachusetts, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Maryland, Indiana, and Illinois. Recovery Centers of America, or RCA, was founded to break down barriers to expert treatment. We answer the phone and admit patients 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, are in network with major insurance providers and provide evidence-based treatment in our world-class facilities. If you or someone you know needs help, call 1-800-RECOVERY and know we are here for you.